I thought that, you know, maybe some small companies would use it, right? Not in my wildest dreams did I think that like Amazon or Microsoft or like Google or Apple would end up actually using it because I just figured, well, you know, they would have some solution in-house and like, why would they actually bother? This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Matt Klein is with us here today. Matt Klein is the creator of the Envoy Proxy Project. We're going to go into details on that. Matt, maybe to kick us off, could you tell us how Envoy Proxy got started? What's the impetus for the project? Yeah, where did this all begin? Sure. Uh, That's a fun fun thing to think about at this point. So yeah, so I've been working in networking and distributed systems for uh, probably about the last 10 years now. In that 10-year span, I worked on EC2 within Amazon on networking. Uh, From there, I went to Twitter. I spent a fair amount of time working on Twitter's uh, front proxy. So I built uh, Twitter's proxy uh, that at that time was terminating Speedy, uh, H2, H1. So at Twitter, I was exposed a lot to, you know, different edge proxy concepts. But at the same time, I was also present for a lot of the work that was going on in the service-to-service networking space. So obviously, Twitter has a uh, very powerful library called uh, Finagle. And, um, you know, so I was definitely aware of the different work that was going on there. So when I left uh, Twitter and I came to Lyft, Lyft at that time had a a large monolithic application written in PHP. Uh, At the time that I joined, there were probably 20 or 30 different Python microservices. And, you know, I have obviously talked about this a lot, but Lyft was having, you know, very common problems with their microservice deployment. They were having problems around, you know, understanding uh, where different things were actually happening. So like where the problems happening uh, within the network, within the application, you know, and uh, we were in a situation where uh, we had developers who, you know, we were basically telling to deploy microservices, but those developers did not trust the microservices deployment. Uh, so we were in a we were in a pretty bad situation um, where, you know, we had a bunch of microservices, we had this monolith, uh, we had developers who didn't want to write microservices because they didn't trust the network, they didn't understand how to observe it, they didn't understand how to uh, uh, fixed problems. So then they wanted to write their features back in the uh, monolithic application. So we were in this, you know, split world, which was not great. Um, so just having experienced what happened to Twitter and obviously seeing what other people were doing at different companies, you know, I think we knew at Lyft that we needed to head in a, you know, in a direction such as having an edge proxy to do uh, routing. Uh, and then we obviously had to start figuring out how to do services service communication. We had to do that in a consistent way. And at that time, you know, we already had PHP at Lyft. We obviously had Python. I think there already might have been like a Java service. Even very early on, we were starting to think about, are we going to write more services in, uh, you know, like a language like Go or, or Java or something else? 
you know, so that brings us back to the second common problem that most people have, which is once you, uh, you know, go in and start to try to solve some of these problems, you, you know, you're faced with two different solutions. You can figure out an out of uh, process proxy solution, or you could start writing uh, libraries. And I, I think just having seen the pros and cons of the library based approach, both at Twitter as well as other companies, I pretty strongly did not want to go with the library based approach. And that was really mostly around uh, one, you know, having to support it in every different language, which becomes a huge maintenance burden. And two, you know, for those of you out there that, you know, have tried to upgrade libraries, that can be a very painful thing when you have lots of different services. It can take months and months and months. So, you know, I I think uh, that there's some pretty big downsides to the library based approach. So that led us to, you know, thinking, well, okay, so we're going to do an out of uh, process proxy approach. And obviously, once you go down that path, there's lots of different options. You could build something on top of an existing library, such as Finagle uh, or Netflix's Hystrix. Or you can take an existing proxy like HAProxy or Nginx. And I think lots of people have asked me, well, you know, why, why did you go and build this thing from scratch? Like, why didn't you use an existing proxy? And, you know, I, I think the answer to that is I had been doing, you know, this networking stuff for quite some time. I had a lot of exposure to HAProxy as well as Nginx. I was pretty convinced that, you know, it was important that we went for a, uh, a very high performance, low uh, latency solution. So that meant that we didn't want to do something in a, any language like Java. You know, so that, that led us at that time in 2015, you know, with a, a native code solution. So that pretty much was, you know, should we use Nginx, should we use HAProxy, or should we build something ourselves? You know, I'm going to be honest in saying that at Lyft in 2015, definitely had some conversations that went along the lines of, well, let's just build something in Python and, you know, we can do it in Python. And then if it becomes a problem later, we can swap it out. You know, so there were definitely conversations around, you know, did it make sense to do a very high performance solution or, or given where Lyft was at the time, like, should we do something a little bit faster, uh, you know, with possibly lower perf? So at the time, you know, this was myself and obviously, I mean, the company when I joined, I want to say probably had only 70 or 80 developers. So it was a pretty small organization. And like of that 70 or 80 people, there were probably only at that time, I'm guessing 10 or 15 people working in what we would now call DevOps or infra. You know, so the set of people that were making decisions back then was quite small. You know, so we had we had a lot of conversations around, you know, obviously, do we use an existing system that we can build on? Do we like do something in Python or do we do what what ended up actually happening, which was to build our our own proxy? And to be totally honest with you, you know, in in hindsight, I think it's fairly incredible that Envoy actually came to be in that environment. You know, I think that Lyft was willing to give me uh, a large piece of rope with which to hang myself. And, you know, that was a great experience. And I think that it definitely could have gone different ways. I think people could have been very adamant that, you know, we're not going to build something from scratch. We should like do it with Nginx or HAProxy and build some Lua plugins, or we should build it in Python and then swap it out or something like that. 
And I think primarily based on my prior experience, the fact that I have built something at Twitter, you know, that was kind of like this. So this was a little bit of a V2. I was fairly confident that I could do it relatively quickly. And just having dealt with those other solutions, I was fairly confident that there was a, a need within the industry for a more a more modern proxy solution, you know, something that was built more for, I guess, you know, now what we would call the quote cloud native space or or what we call now the service mesh space, but those things didn't really exist that much at that time in early 2015. You know, so I was definitely given a lot of rope to hang myself with, as I said, and we went off and, and essentially started coding. And, you know, of course, it wasn't entirely from scratch, right? I mean, it's like I was, uh, I was building on knowledge, uh, you know, from, from what I had done at Twitter. So I, I, I knew, you know, it was empty files, but I knew what I had done I knew what I'd done wrong there. Um, I knew what libraries to use and what libraries not to use, you know, and we were able to get something into production in only, you know, about three or four months. And, and of course, you know, that first version was a very simple thing compared to what we have today. But I'm a, I'm a huge believer in uh, not doing big banks. I think it's very important to, you know, build something small and then, you know, essentially take it from there. So, you know, we started with a very small feature set within Envoy. We actually rolled out from an edge proxy perspective first. So that was replacing our existing edge proxy, which was the Amazon Elastic Load Balancer. And immediately, just the observability that we had, you know, from sticking Envoy there at that time, and, and that was only an H1 solution. You know, we, we weren't even terminating TLS. You know, it was, a, it was a very simple thing back then. But even the uh, basic version, just, you know, getting out different timing data, you know, different dynamic response code data, different types of logs, that was very, very valuable. And then, you know, from there, it, it just grew organically. You know, we were having a bunch of issues with MongoDB at the time. And, you know, so we decided, well, you know, we were running a proxy next to our uh, monolith to help talking to MongoDB, but there were issues. So we swapped that out with Envoy. We ended up writing a protocol parser for MongoDB to get really interesting stats. And that was the beginning of our uh, service mesh. We had our edge proxy talking to our monolith with Envoy running as a sidecar. And then, you know, the, the rest is pretty much history in the sense that we just kept adding features. And then we rolled out Envoy everywhere. And, you know, of course, I'm greatly uh, simplifying what actually happened. But, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. This is awesome. So, so from the beginning, it sounded like you had some ambition or belief that this could be bigger than Lyft, for example. You, you mentioned the kind of the cloud native community. Was the intent that this would be an open source project and that there may be users outside of Lyft fairly soon after launch? Or what, what were your thinking around that? Yeah, I mean, like having, having built something like this back at Twitter that wasn't open source, and to be honest, I'm I'm very happy. It's not open source because it's not very good. Um, but uh, I think I was definitely aware that there was a desire to use something like this. Now, um, what I will say is that I vastly underestimated the overall desire for this type of solution. Um, you know, so so we had always planned on open sourcing it. I, I think you know even from the beginning. 
Lyft had had the perspective that if we were going to invest, you know, this this many resources into building something like this, we should open source it. So, you know, we started development, I want to say in like May of 2015, and we open sourced in, I think, September of 2016. So, you know, like a year and a couple of months. And, you know, before we went to open source in 2016, we started doing a little bit of a roadshow. So, you know, I went and I talked to, you know, a couple of companies that were like Lyft. So like similar type of size. Um, I actually forget now who I talked to. So like maybe like Yelp or like Stripe or like Slack companies in that type of growth period. And it was a very interesting conversation because I think every company that I talked to, and this is probably in like July or August of 2016, every company that I talked to, they were uh, very happy. They were very receptive. They thought that what we had built was quite cool, you know, but what's very interesting about a solution like Envoy, you know, versus some, some type of product that you can just try out you can't just try out Envoy. Like you can't, you know, it's not something that you can just bolt on. Like it's a, it's a fundamental change to how you run your, your infra. So from a smaller company perspective, you know, I think lots of companies were very interested. They were very fascinated, but not surprisingly now, you know, they said, well, you know, this is great, but our existing solution kind of works. And like, we would love to do this, but we just don't have the resources right now. So, when we open sourced in uh, you know September of 2016, I was a little sad, right? You know, I was like, oh, it would be so great if we had gotten someone excited and you know if someone launched with us or like something like that. And you know, so when we when we open sourced in uh, 2016, like I said, we hadn't had any real uptake or traction before open sourcing, so it was a very organic thing. I didn't really know what would happen. I my dream at the time was, you know, wow, if like one of Lyft's peer companies, like like Slack or Stripe or something like that, if we could just get one or two of those companies to use Envoy, like that would be an incredible success. And within weeks of open sourcing, and I, and I can't go into you know, deep detail, but I was talking to tens of engineers at Google within weeks of open sourcing. I was talking to people at Apple. I was talking to people at Microsoft. I was talking to people over at, uh, over at eBay. And it was incredible to me how quickly some of these larger companies showed up. And at that point, I really realized that I had underestimated the desire within the industry for a more modern proxy. So a proxy built like Envoy from like multiple angles. So uh, built in a modern programming style, built from an API first aspect, built from an extensibility perspective. I think people, especially at the larger companies, they had been trying to do various things bolted on top of HAProxy and Nginx. And I think, you know, just seeing this new uh, solution and seeing, you know, that it was already running in production at Lyft. So it had some basic level of testing, of course. I think that really excited these companies, you know, and that was really the beginning, I would say, towards the end of 2016 and, and early 2017, when things really started blowing up. Google just became super involved, you know, and that's been a fantastic relationship. And then, you know, as these larger companies that had uh, deeper needs for this type of solution came about, it was clear that they had the resources to actually put into developing it, to actually deploying it. 
And then, you know, throughout 2017 and into this year, you know, at this point, like all of Lyft's peer companies like Stripe and like Slack and Yelp and everyone, right? I mean, they're all they're all basically using Envoy now or they're in, in final testing before production deployment. So like everyone at this point, you know, is is pretty much either using Envoy or is planning on using Envoy. But it's just been an interesting evolution for me to see it did not happen how I thought it would happen. Like I thought that, you know, maybe some small companies would use it, right? And, you know, not in my wildest dreams did I think that like Amazon or Microsoft or like Google or Apple would end up actually using it because I just figured, well, you know, they would have some solution in-house and like, why would they actually bother? But it has turned out that uh, Envoy has been very compelling for companies of pretty much every size. And it was the large companies first, you know, then the medium companies. And now, you know, we have probably over 10, 10 or more startups, right, that are building products on, on top of Envoy. And I think that that's how Envoy will, will really go to the uh, masses, if you will. And I think for smaller companies, I think a lot of people are going to end up using Envoy, but they're going to use it via other products. And they're probably not even going to be aware that they're actually using Envoy. Like they'll buy some other product and that product will be built on top. So, you know, it's been a pretty amazing journey. Super amazing journey. It sounds like the launch, of course, was kind of an inflection point for you. What are the mechanics of the launch? I mean, in order to get the attention of Google and others, was there fanfare or is this kind of just release on GitHub? I imagine there's a blog post. Yeah, it's funny to actually think back through this. And I've I've said this to many people recently. You know, if I if I look at the last, say, two years of my life or two years plus a couple of months, I feel like I have not learned a single thing technically. Uh, but I have learned so much about just what it takes to build a, a vibrant open source community. And it is not easy. The best way that I can describe it is, you know, it's like, it's like starting your own company and you're doing all of the roles, right? You're like the chief marketing officer, uh, you're the PR person, you know, so you're, so yeah, you're sitting there like figuring out how to use Twitter, uh, blog posts, conferences, and, you know, on, on top of that, there's uh, smaller things that are super important that I think a lot of projects don't spend enough time working on, but but end up being critical. For example, documentation. You know, before we open source Envoy, I remember I actually took an entire uh, week where I stayed home. I called it a docucation. Uh, and I just, I, I spent like... 50 hours just like writing documentation. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that caught people's eye very early on. And that's kind of what I'm saying is that there, there is a lot of, there is a lot of marketing to building a, a larger community like this. I think when you, when you make an announcement, you know, the first thing people do is they're going to go to your webpage. Like, does the webpage look professional or does it look bad? You know, then they're going to click on your documentation. Like, is there documentation? Does it look like it's well-written? Is it comprehensive? So although I had never done this before, I just from seeing other projects, I had a pretty good idea of, you know, of what would be required to, to actually hopefully make it successful. Um, so before launch, we spent a lot of time, uh, or you know, doing documentation. Uh, got someone to make a logo. Actually, made like a web page. Um, you know, uh, got set up to do Twitter. Um, you know, started to think about speaking at different conferences and uh, meetups. So you know, a big part again of you know that 
late 2017 period was, you know, me being a, being a cheerleader, you know, just helping whoever came along. Like, uh, there's lots of interesting stories just around, uh, particularly in late 2016, when Google was, was very, very interested in Envoy. And at that time, it was almost uh, what I would envision. I've never gone through the process, but it was almost like, I think, uh, going through an acquisition. You just had tons of Google people just like asking me questions around like, what, why does it work this way? Like, why does it do that? Or, you know, doing uh, performance testing and load testing and then asking me like, why, why is it this way? And, you know, coming to me with bugs and saying, well, I tried this and it's broken. And then I would like, turn around a fix in like four hours or something like that. And, you know, so it was, it was very much, uh, at, at that time. And, you know, and, and I, and I think if you really go back, um, you know, it, it could have gone either way. Like I think at the time Google was evaluating whether to build Istio, uh, you know, I think they had planned on probably using Nginx and, you know, and I think Envoy came about and, and there was a bunch of pros for that. So I think that sparked a very interesting conversation within Google around which technology to actually build on. And that's when that whole kind of, you know, uh, should we use this random technology from Lyft, you know, that's mostly written by this one random person, right? And that was a very interesting and stressful time in my life. It was fun also. So, you know, that's a that's a long, long-winded answer to your question. But I think that again, there hasn't been a lot of technical stuff since we open source, but I think we have gotten a lot of feedback, you know, that we have built a, a very welcoming and, and a very vibrant community. And that's been very important to me. And I will say that that takes a tremendous amount of effort. Just, you know, setting the right tone for the overall community, like making sure that people treat each other with respect, that people are nice during code reviews, that people have, um, you know, very, very civil discussions, like when they're actually designing features. You know, these are things that take effort. But I think that that partly comes from the top. And I think that setting that type of tone, you know, it has percolated throughout the community. And honestly, it, it blows my mind sometimes now to just see, you know, people that are, you know, that, that step in and help people answer questions and, you know, fix bugs. And it's been a, it's been a pretty amazing journey. Certainly. I love the, the image of that Google feeling like an acquisition situation. At this point, I imagine Envoy Proxy feels like your baby in a sense. And although Google's not actually trying to you know, acquire your baby, like, were there any anxieties around, you know, what's going to happen? Is this going to get derailed in some way? Or, or is it mostly positive vibes throughout the whole thing? Well, you know, so very early on, so this is again, this is in early fall of 2016. I'll be honest, I was definitely concerned um, just about, like, if Google came on in force, you know, uh, would they force changes in product direction? Like, would we get mired in lots of discussion and then like not be able to move fast? And I'm going to be honest, all of the people that I have worked with at, at Google on Envoy have just been absolutely fantastic. Like they're incredible engineers. They're super pragmatic. And, you know, the, the project is absolutely better for having them, them, them join. So, you know, I, I think I was definitely fearful but it's worked out so well. And, you know, if we go back again, like to that time, 
it was obviously amazing to get resources from a company like Google. But, you know, now, right, it's like we have people from Apple who are maintainers. Like we have, uh, I mean, we're getting commits all the time from tons of different companies. Um, so at, at this point, of course, you know, I think if you went and you go through the the commits, I'm sure the majority of commits are, well, the majority of commits are probably for me still, but the folks at Google have done incredible work. But I guess my larger point is that now we get very sophisticated PRs, like not just bug fixes from lots of different companies. So it's a it's a true multi-company effort now. And I think, again, that's just what has been so amazing about this is to see it grow, you know, from a Lyft thing to like a Lyft and a Google thing to like a Lyft and a Google and an Apple thing to now, you know, you could just go through the different commits. And again, I, I don't even know. I mean, we're getting uh, very sophisticated stuff from like Square, VMware, and just all, all types of companies. So that's just fantastic. You know, you wonder in a project, like there may be one motivation to just get everyone to use it. It sounded like at the beginning, you just we're excited if, if a company wanted to use Envoy. And then there's this other kind of goal maybe around the project like to get contributors. Was, was that ever something that you were excited to bring in or you know, more contributors, people who could add this feature or that feature? Or did that kind of just happen organically? You know, it's a combination of organic, but it's what I was talking about before is building a larger community. It just takes a lot of work, right? And so like cultivating maintainers or encouraging people to, to like keep fixing bugs and like helping them grow and learn, you know, learn the code base that all takes effort. But I learned very early on, particularly in late 2016 and early 2017, that was probably the most stressed that I've ever been in, in my entire life. I, I mean, just the project just blew up, you know, and, and just the influx of people that were coming in with either questions or PRs or all of these things and the stress of getting uh, everyone on the same page of what does the code quality look like and like, are we all aligned? And that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. So if I look into the spring of 2017, you know, there's all this community stuff going on and fantastic experience, super stressful that's when all of the venture capitalists start showing up. And I obviously wrote an entire blog post on this, but that time was made more stressful because there's all of this community building, like the project is, is blowing up. And then I don't want to say harassed, but I mean, I'm getting a lot of inbound from VCs, you know, so trying to balance like all of these different competing forces, particularly in the first half of 2017, was very, very difficult. Uh, so that was a that was a very stressful time in my life. And it was, it was hard to obviously think through all of the different competing ways that I could spend my time, like all of the different types of, of outcomes. But ultimately, you know, if I look back to early 2017, in which I was still intimately involved in like almost every PR that went in because people weren't familiar with the code. Like I, I just had to be there to help. Whereas today, you know, we as a group have cultivated a set of maintainers and a set of contributors who make changes to the most complicated parts of the code base. So I went on leave for a, a month, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, so this is in like August of this year. 
And the first time in a long time where I, I, I literally, I, I did not open GitHub. I did not check a single email. I did not open Slack. I didn't do anything for one month. And I had just had zero concerns, like, because I feel like we, we have built that, we have built that larger community. We have that base of maintainers. Everyone generally sees eye to eye on design and code quality and all of those things that, Again, like, I don't want to say that I've totally made myself useless, but, you know, I, I feel like the project is now self-sustaining. And I think that's something that I've worked really, really hard for. And um, I think a lot of people out there, when they, you know, when they, when they look at open source or when they, you know, when they think about what a job like mine is, I think a lot of people think that it's this super glorious thing, right? Like, oh, you know, Matt, you like started this open source project and it's fantastically successful. This is like great all the time. And (laughs) it's really hard work, like really, really, really hard work, you know, doing code reviews for seven or eight hours per day, or, you know, just again, like cultivating that larger community, like trying to make sure that we have enough maintainers, that we have enough people doing support, it's like building a company, but it's like building a company in which none of the people actually work for you, right? So it's like open source is, is in some ways total controlled anarchy. Um, so trying to make all of that work is very complicated. I imagine you're getting inundated with people who some are just like asking for help or answer a question or here's a bug. And then you have others that maybe look like they could be potential maintainers in the future. They're offering guidance and sending you lots of PRs. How do, how do those maintainers emerge? I, I imagine you're eager to find people you trust that understand and can share the vision and can, you can offload work and components to in this super busy time. It's definitely an evolving process. So, you know, when I was initially trying to build the larger community around the project, like anyone that asked any question, right? Like whether it be in GitHub or email or Slack, like I would just be sitting there, like, you know, answering any question that anyone asked. And that was important during the early phases because that's just, that's, that, that's how you build one of these things, but that's not scalable. Like it's not scalable from a stress level for me. It's not scalable from a larger project perspective. So I don't have a firm answer for you. And, and honestly, one day I, I may end up writing an entire book on this because it has been, it has been such a journey, but it's trying to find the right balance. So, you know, it's, it's trying to look for people that maybe just out of, out of fun, you know, we're doing a couple of PRs here and there and I'll just see these PRs and look at them and say, wow, like this person is fantastic. Like they just did all this work and like, they didn't ask any questions about it, you know, and then I'll do a little internet stalking and try to find out like how to contact them or who they are. And, and some of that doesn't lead anywhere because some people just do a PR because they need it for their job or, or they're just, you know, doing it for a hobby. And sometimes it does lead somewhere. So there's actually this uh, one one guy named D who uh, he lives in Indonesia, and I, I don't even remember now. You know, he he started just I think just doing Envoy PRs for fun, like probably like six, seven, or eight months ago. And uh, I, I think maybe he was working with some Indonesian tech companies, or uh, you know, but he also owned a bakery. Like it's a it's like a pretty crazy story. 
you know, so he had been doing all this work, like it was really fantastic. And then I just reached out, you know, and I was like, are you interested in potentially being a maintainer? And, you know, fast forward now, not only is he a maintainer, but he actually works for an Envoy startup. <laughs> um, so, you know, it just shows you that that's what is so amazing to me about some of this open source stuff. Like it doesn't always work this way. But you do have these incredible stories of just like people around the world who just hop in out of interest and then it leads to a full-time job, right? And like, that's so amazing to me. Amazing. Take us now to where we're at today. It sounds like these maintainers kind of play a governance role with the project. How does kind of the project operate today in terms of governance? And then and then we'll shift gears eventually to, to where you want the, to see this thing go. As part of joining CNCF and partly because I wanted to get ahead of any governance issues, you know, we, we, we have set up a governance system. So we have a concept of senior maintainers and maintainers. And like, if we have a dispute, there's a documented voting process. To be honest, we have never yet had to invoke this voting process. In, in general, we're very careful of who we let become a maintainer. I think we take it slow, try to make sure that everyone sees eye to eye. I'm not naive. Like I'm sure that eventually something's going to happen and like we are going to have to vote, but that's there. I think I'm still probably looked at as the project lead. So, you know, at least from a design discussion perspective, like sometimes I will weigh in my opinion, but I, I don't really like the benevolent dictator title because that's, that's not what we're going for here. Like, I think we're trying to build a, a community of people that can make technical decisions and like, Hopefully we should be mostly aligned and that's what's happened so far. But like I was saying before, it's hard to cultivate that. Like you have to do it very, very carefully. It's to me, it's no different than building a company. You have to be very careful with who you hire. Like once you hire people, firing people is very difficult, right? So, um, you know, I, I think when you build these larger communities, particularly around maintainers, the people that have commit access, it, it takes a lot of thought, you know, to make sure that people see eye to eye and have compatible personalities. You know, what is interesting is almost all of the existing Envoy maintainers have very little previous experience use, doing open source. Like most of us are all, you know, proprietary mercenary type developers. So, you know, maybe, maybe that's part of it is that none of us, I don't think really had any preconceived notions. Like we didn't really know what we were doing. So I, I think we've just kind of figured it out. But I think it's it's just going slow and just trying to make sure that we have the right people. And, uh, you know, like I say, always be scaling, right? It's like trying to find people that are that are into it. And I will reach out to them and see if they want to, you know, want to become maintainers. So uh, it's a never ending process. Awesome. And, and where, where do you go from here? So like, is there a backlog of, of features and things you want to do on the project? Is it mostly fully baked? And this is kind of maintenance and bugs. Yeah, and, there's, and I'm curious, are there other kind of ecosystem, you know, things you're navigating? Yeah. Where is you know, always place in the world? Right. I mean, th this is probably even the subject of a, of a different podcast, but from an open source economics perspective, it's quite interesting just in the sense that one of the reasons that Envoy has been so successful is that we are a community first project. Like we don't have to reconcile uh, whether if we take a feature or patch from someone that it's going to break our, our underlying business model because there is no business model for Envoy itself. And that is a powerful thing. With that said, the reason that Envoy is funded so highly by different companies is that companies are building products on top. 
right? So that's going to be control systems. That's going to be observability systems. There's, there's no end to the number of things that can end up being built on top. So what's interesting is that there's a delicate balance here where I think there's a ton that can be done within the Envoy project itself that we haven't even touched on yet, like different protocol support, uh, more types of dynamic load balancing, like adaptive load balancing. Uh, there's just tons of different things. But we don't necessarily want to go into higher level control systems or UIs or stuff like that in the project itself, because that's where it becomes complicated, because that's where some of the people that are funding Envoy development are themselves making money. And then I think you can get into this situation of, you know, now there's portions of the project that might be competing with some of the paid offerings. So that's uh, a balance that we will have to kind of uh, find in the future of how to keep the project community driven, uh, how to keep it running for all the people that actually want to use it as as a foundational part of their system. But, you know, have to be careful to not, uh, you know, spin up some part of the project that might directly compete with, uh, you know, with some of the companies that end up end up funding it. And again, like, I don't have a firm answer for you there. That's something that we're just going to have to look at as we go. But that's that's a very interesting balance that I, I think will be there. But from a roadmap perspective, I think there's a lot of stuff that can be done and built in that just hasn't been funded. For myself, I've obviously written about this. I would love to see uh, CNCF and other foundations, you know, offer full-time fellowships um, for, for people to actually work on something like Envoy full-time so that they can focus on community-driven development, uh, but, but, but not have to work for, for a particular company. Um, so that's something that I think will end up being discussed more and more over the next couple of years. But right now, you know, it's I, I think because we're just moving forward and, and development is really being driven by all the companies that are using Envoy for their own products, um, it's hard to have a, a roadmap. Like everyone's always asking, what is Envoy's roadmap? Well, you know, for a community-driven project, it's pretty hard to have a roadmap because like, I don't know what people are going to end up implementing. <laughs> so that's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, this is this is great. It's, it's wonderful to hear your story and the story of Envoy. As we wrap up here, Matt, uh, it'd be great to, if you have any kind of requests for the community or, um, you know, if people after hearing this are interested about the project, things that they can do to get involved, any suggestions there? Yeah, I think I would just say to folks out there that we have tried very hard to have a, a very welcoming community. So we have uh, GitHub, we have Slack, we have all of our email addresses, we have a, a new developer guide. Our GitHub is up to date in terms of help wanted. We have easy issues marked as beginner. C++ is less scary than I think the internet would would like people to believe. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, there are lots of options for getting involved. And even apart from coding, as in every project, we're desperate for people to help with documentation, with tutorials, uh, with, with blog posts. So there are so many ways to get involved. And you know, I see myself mostly as a uh, facilitator, you know, so uh, people can always reach out to me. My contact info is pretty easy to find or reach out one of the project aliases, but always happy to have people get involved. Thanks so much, Matt. Uh, congrats on an amazing project and, and best to you going forward. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
You can find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. <laughs>